Thank you. Good morning. Well, we're uh, in Acts chapter 24 this morning as we continue our series on becoming the church stories of the first Jesus people. Last week we, we looked at uh, chapter 21, 27 through chapter 23, 35. And we kind of had this bird's eye perspective on what God was doing through Paul. And there's an application for us, a very tangible one, that like Paul, uh, we can turn trials into testimony to Jesus Christ. That carries through to chapter 24. And I, I was thinking this week about verse 11 of chapter 23 where, where the Lord, meaning Jesus, comes to Paul. He's now in custody. He's imprisoned. And at his side, right there at that uh, dire moment, perhaps, he says, Paul, you've been a, a testimony to me to Jerusalem and you're going to be a testimony to me in Rome. This morning, I want us to consider the providence of God. There's purpose in God's providence. We're going to talk a little about providence. It's a big concept, but it doesn't have to baffle us. It's, if you think of providence like providence, the very idea that God exists, that he is actively involved in his creation. He's not just a watchmaker who makes a watch, winds it up, and walks away, or a landlord that just, you know, gives you the keys to the front door and disappears. God is present, and he moves in our lives. And I want us to see that as we consider Paul's mindset and perspective. It's really shaped by the providence of God. And if I just tell the whole story in a sentence, I mean, Jesus is true north on the map of God's providence. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we think we're true north and that everything's oriented to us. But we're really moving with God in our lives when we realize that his purposes for us are centered in Jesus Christ. And when we move with him, our life assumes great meaning and purpose because God is the author of our lives and the plot and purpose of his plan for us. So let's look at chapter 24 as we consider God's purpose in his providence. Well, now five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight. I should just add, this word foresight could also be translated providence. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation, everywhere. 
and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Well, that's quite, quite telling, isn't it? If you think of someone arguing that God has that kind of providence in your life, wow, that, that becomes quite a memory verse there. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him, little stretch of the truth there, by examining him yourself you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years, you have been a judge over this nation. So I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Just underscore that idea of 12 days. Because in a sense, Paul is going to refute the two charges against him. The charge of sedition, this is in verse 5 and 6, sedition that he arouses trouble, that he raises up rebellion everywhere he goes, and it's just stretched to the whole earth. And Paul, in effect, says, I've only been around here 12 days. Uh, when did all this take place? And then the charge of profaning or violating the temple, and he'll address that as well. And he says, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anyone else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit, he will confess this, that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts to do, do this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless... It was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. 
It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, that is Claudius Lysias the tribune, the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul discoursed on justice, or you could use the synonym righteousness, on self-control and on the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. He became very frightened and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Uh, it's a book in my office by Wendell Berry titled J. Bear Crow. And J. Bear who is the main character, J. Bear Crow looks back over his long life and he reflects on God's guidance and providence. This is what J. Bear says. I can't look back from where I am now and, and feel that I've been very much in charge of my life. I've made plans enough but I see now that I've never lived by plan. Nearly everything that's happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise. Whatever has been happening usually has happened before I had time to expect it. So when I've thought I was in my story or in charge of it. I really have only been on the edge of it, carried along. In this, because we are in an eternal story that is happening partly in time. John Piper, in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, talks about providence this way. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is winding and a troubled road. Switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones and not just know in our heads that God is for us in all these strange turns. 
God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up, although he's doing that. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. There's purpose in God's providence. And this morning I want us to see God the governor of providence. And there's a a sense in which I'm using governor because it is a bit of a play on the context where Felix is the governor. His providence is recognized. He stands in judgment over the affairs of Paul. But we're to see God as governor of providence. And we're to see Paul as servant of providence. Paul, because he understands the true north, the compass point on the map of God's purpose. And Paul serves that because he recognizes the significant and central place of Jesus in the plan of God. It has become the compass point of his whole life. And so he is a servant of providence. He is not a judge of God's providence. He recognizes it and moves with God because of Jesus Christ in his life. And then, of course, there's Felix, who himself is a judge. And in a way, we are all like Felix. But when we think of God taking Paul to Rome... God has also brought him to this point and brought him into the very life of Felix. Felix got up one morning and on his docket there was a case, a trial, a man under his overarching supervision. But in that meeting, in that trial, in those meetings with Paul, Felix himself had to make a decision, not just about Paul, but about his own life, his own view of his place in this world. And he was in a place of judgment, as are we all. And so in one sense, we can identify with Felix when our heads are lifted and our eyes lifted to see the providence of God. Verse 20, chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord's purpose for Paul to go to Rome. God's purpose for Paul is a part of God's greater, bigger, grander purpose in Jesus Christ. The Lord didn't have to explain to Paul As if Paul was going to say, now what is it you want me to do again? Could you give me some detail here? His whole life was oriented to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very filter, the orientation of his existence. And you'll recall in chapter 9, when Paul was reeling from this Damascus road, (laughs) Life-changing event, Ananias 
in taking Paul into his care, gave Paul a word from the Lord that he was to be a witness for the Lord, not only to his people, but to kings and to all Gentiles. Paul understood that. The bigger picture of God's purpose, I want us to understand that just a little bit. So I want us to look with me to a a couple of passages. And my justification for this is for for us to appreciate that Paul, some of the passages we're going to look at, Paul has, has written in the past couple of years. And it reflects not only the revelation of what is on God's heart, but it reminds us what is on Paul's heart. And it formulates his outlook and his mindset. But we see the providence of God in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Athens and he went to the Areopagus and he was talking to the philosophers. And just in those chapter 17 verses 22 through 31, I want to just kind of summarize trying to get at the. And I want you to see a picture of the providence of God that Paul paints. Verse 24, God, creator. Lord of heaven and earth, giver of life, breath, and everything, making the nations to inhabit the earth, verse 26, marking out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Verse 27, God did this that they should seek him, recognizing, you see, that he is the provider, the providential provider of life and everything in it, and that we should seek him and reach out for him and find him, though he's not far, says Paul, from any one of us. Verse 28, in him we live, move, and have our being. We're his offspring. God has overlooked our ignorance of him, he says, but now And this is all oriented to Jesus Christ, as he will say. Now, he commands all everywhere to turn to him. Turn to him. Acknowledge him. Recognize him. For he, verse 31, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And who is that man? Jesus Christ. If there was any question... As he says then, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There's a snapshot of God's providence. In literary terms, like the writing of a book, you could think of it this way. God is the author of a grand story. A book that encompasses all of life. We're characters among many others, that our author has created and placed within his overall plot, given to a chapter, and given to a setting in a chapter, with the freedom to write our part. Should we write our part as though there is no author, no plot, no meaning, no overall purpose, no foreword, No beginning, no end. Many characters do. But others write their part with the author. 
In literary terms, God's providence can be discerned in his editing, his plot strategies, his purpose, his plot, his themes. God wants to be included in the writing of your story. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and in the very first chapter, he opened telling us in these initial verses of Ephesians, this letter to them where he spent some three years. He writes there not only about their lives being a part of God's plan, but when you read those opening verses, he's writing about your being a part of God's plan and my being a part of God's plan. And he positions his readers in the understanding that we know God's love. We know his restoration. We know his forgiveness and adoption because we know his son, Jesus Christ. That's the beginning point with which he positions us to see the providence of God, not just for our past, but for our future. And he says that our experience, feeble as it may be, is the reality of that plan originally conceived in the secret counsel of God's heart before the creation of the world. This plan, he says, always included and ultimately depended upon Jesus. In fact, we know the plan now because of Jesus. That's the point of verse 9 and 10. And you should remember this. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 of Ephesians. And he says, God exposed the mystery of his will according to his purpose in Jesus Christ. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is true north in the purposeful providence of God. Jesus is true north in the map and compass of God's providential plan. Now just think about this to kind of lighten this up just for a moment. I'll never forget this quote from Quentin Tarantino. He's a movie director, kind of a quirky fellow. And maybe it's that that gave him this insight. But he said, Clark Kent, you all know who Clark Kent is, don't you? Clark Kent is Superman's opinion of the human race. And let me just, just let that sink in for a moment. I think there's really some, some insight there, you know. I mean, Superman, right? Okay, how am I going to present myself? How am I going to be human? How do I want people to see me? Well, his, <laughs> this is how he sees the, the human race. This is his portrait, his picture, his persona of the human race. He could have been anybody, you know. But he chooses to be Clark Kent. That's Superman's opinion of the human race. And it's not a bad one if you get to know Clark Kent. But if you use that logic... And now you think of God's opinion of the human race, his opinion of you, his opinion of the human race, his opinion of the plan for each and every one of us is not Superman, but Jesus Christ. That's his opinion 
of the human race. That's his ideal of the human race. And that is his purpose. Each and every one of us, God is shaping, drawing, that we might become more like Jesus Christ. That's his ultimate purpose and plan. And you know, I remember when I was in a philosophy class. I'm almost out of time, and I haven't even begun. I was in a philosophy class, and my philosopher in my first year in college, my philosophy professor said, let's talk about truth. What is truth? And I said, you know, if it's truth, it ought to be accessible to everybody. To me, that's, that, that's what makes it true. That it's not just that which is available to the elite or the exceptional or the gold medal athlete or the beautiful, but that it should encompass everybody. That nobody should be excluded. That's the beauty of truth. And that's the beauty of Jesus Christ. He's not above or beyond or outside of anyone's opportunity and possibility. In fact, when you know the heart of Jesus, it includes the lowest, the leanest, the meekest, the smallest. It includes us all. And there's the beauty of God's providence. You're not outside His will or His purpose for your life. The irony is sometimes we exclude Him. We relegate God to the special places, the exceptional places of our lives. And not the heart and soul of who we are. Even here, Paul, who's on trial, entrusts the plot of his story to God. Amazing when you think that the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, when he, which he'd written just months before, that 13th chapter which talks about authorities and rulers. Paul can entrust himself to this Roman court because just authority signifies the higher providential governance of God. In fact, if you reread that 13th chapter of Romans. When I read it, I tend to begin comparing human authorities and and kings and rulers and, and systems of government against this picture. But sometimes we fail to see that in what he is saying about just government is a beautiful picture of the providence of God. His goodness, his justice, his righteousness, his care. His direction. Paul can entrust himself to the Roman court as he does because of the governance of God's providence that he knows through Jesus Christ. And when I think of the resurrection, which is so central to that compass point of true north, listen, the resurrection through the resurrection, by the resurrection, we know that Jesus' death has meaning. He died for a purpose, and that purpose includes you and me. And it's expressed to us in terms of forgiveness of sin. 
that God should not allow any power or authority to stand between that which he seeks, his love drawing us into fellowship with him. And his resurrection validating, bringing to pass his purposes for you and for me. Not just a happy hereafter, but a life of great meaning and purpose. It validates not only that Jesus' death has meaning, it validates that God is good, that good wins in the end, that God is just, that his death accounted for unrighteousness and evil, that God knows the difference. And he sent his one and only son to sacrifice his life like no life could be sacrificed because of its incomparable worth and value. That he would sacrifice his life, his distinctive life, his worth-filled life to rectify. And we want that rectification, that justification that evil is evil. And good is good. And sometimes we think that evil is winning. But the resurrection signifies in my heart that good wins in the end. And because of that, I can live sacrificially. I can suffer with meaning. I can know that in the end, evil does not triumph. But if you think that evil triumphs in the end, you'll become a grubby, happiness-seeking person that has to Get all you can out of this life because there's nothing more than that which you can claw. But you can live sacrificially. You can live for greater good. You can live for the greatest good, which is that Jesus Christ should become Lord and Savior of every person and that they should know their true worth and meaning in life, to know their God and Creator in a personal way and His love and goodness in their hearts. That's why Paul is the servant of providence. And Felix, and like Felix... Oh, he's attracted to Paul. He meets with him many times. He's a man who's complex, just like you and me. He's familiar with the way. He wants to hear more about it. I wish I had time to tell you about Felix. We know quite a bit about him from Josephus and Tacitus and other historians. Even Drusilla. Uh, anyway. And he listens with eagerness, but as Paul begins to talk to him about the goodness and justness of God, it causes Felix to be fearful, so much so that he procrastinates and withdraws and dismisses just as he continues to procrastinate and dismiss what he promised he would do and give a judgment upon Paul's trial when the tribune Claudius Lysias arrived to confirm his report, which Felix knew. But he let it drag on for two years because he was a man just like you and me. We're all human. We're complex. We're wishy-washy. We go back and forth. 
And one minute we hear that truth and we're drawn to it. And it, it challenges us. It convicts us. And on the other, very much citizens of this crazy world, we're drawn to self-advantage. We're drawn to the bribe. We're drawn to getting ahead. And we postpone and we put off. And in a way, it's a tragic ending for Felix. Not because of what we know happened to him in history, but because he just continues to postpone allowing God to have a place as the author of the book of our lives and a place in our story. A beautiful place that we know about through Jesus Christ. Doug O'Donnell in God's lyrics tells a story of... uh, being in the sacred museum of the Vatican and coming across a 16th century sculpture by Gian Lorenzo Bernini titled Habakkuk and the Angel. And in this masterpiece, Habakkuk is holding a packed bag as if he's traveling somewhere and his movement is forward and he's walking ahead. However, his movement is arrested and impeded. It's blocked, if you will, by an angel hovering over him who's grabbed this startled prophet by the hair as if lifting him to heaven. And O'Donnell talks about the fact that there's something about this image that's fitting for us. Some of us are very much on our own way, walking in our very different direction than God would have us walk. And we need to be redirected, to be pulled by the hair, if you will, just as Felix was by Paul and the work of the Spirit through what he was sharing with him. And if you will, like Habakkuk in this image, to be pulled up into heaven and to see what Habakkuk saw, as he saw it in his prophecy, verse 1, a vision of God. Only a vision of our triune God can produce this kind of living, walking, forward-moving, lifted high in faith. Well, to bring this a little bit closer to earth, Max Lucado, in his book Max on Life, tells about a story when his daughter was just uh, six years old and they were having a discussion about his work. And it seems that uh, she wasn't too happy with my chosen profession. She wanted me to leave the ministry at age six. So uh, she says to Max Lucado, she said, Dad, I like you as a preacher. I just really wish you sold snow cones. And he says, that's an honest request from a pure heart. I mean, it made sense to her that the happiest people in the world were the men who drove the snow cone trucks. You play music, uh, you sell goodies, you make kids happy. What more could you want? And he says, I heard a request, but I didn't heed it. Why? Because I know better. I know what I'm called to do and what 
what I need to do. The fact is, he writes, I knew more about life than she did. And it's the same with God. God hears our requests, but his answer is not always what we'd like it to be. Why? He knows more than you do. He knows more than I do. There's a purpose in God's providence. Questions? Look at your map and compass and follow true north. And with that all in mind, we are here, uh, maybe under different impulses this morning. I don't know if you ever just step back as the guys get ready to wait upon us. You know, it was kind of the sub-context of last week that we can turn trials into testimony. That God shows himself in great power, great life and light in our lives, especially when we're allowing him to be our God in the midst of our difficulties and trials. Rather than them being meaningless, we see now how great is the purpose. God wants to display the difference he makes in your life. He wants to show his gospel power in your life, in your circumstances. Not that we stumble, but how we get up. For whatever reason you have in mind, however you thought you were writing your part in the story, here's a plot twist. Each one of us is here, not by accident, but by a greater providence than our own. And this morning, we are all individually standing before the bread and the cup. This tangible embodiment, as it were, of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a moment in time when we ourselves have a chance to judge rightly. Not like a Felix, to just postpone or to condescend and just put off again something that God wants to do in our hearts. That we might move with Him and admit Him to the story of our lives. Let's just take a moment And catch a vision of God in our lives. Each one in the private throne room of our hearts. Let God ascend the throne there. And become the God of your life. Who loves you. Cherishes you. Has a plan for your life in ways you don't fully appreciate. Talk to him for just the next minute or two. And then I'll pray and we'll receive the bread and the cup and orient our lives to true north. Heavenly Father, it's like we back a truck up to the 
throne room of our lives and unpack all the issues and things that we want to set before you. But maybe most importantly here in just this moment is to dig deep in our pocket, pull out the compass of our lives and give it a primary place in the way we walk with you day in and day out and the way we orient ourselves and uh, see the things that are happening all around us and to walk with you to plot our lives with you and your purpose in Christ as our true north and guidance. In taking this bread and this cup, once again, we're doing that. We're setting you on the throne of our lives through your very means, the death of Jesus Christ for us. The reminder that uh, you are Lord and we are welcome to you not on our own merit but on the merit of the one with whom we identify because he epitomizes your love for us and so we take this bread and this cup as a confession once again an expression once again of our love for you and our dependence upon what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had blessed, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. This is the most sacred thing we do. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, the cup also, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant is sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is in his resurrection that we know it will be fulfilled. All of you drink it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I just want to remind you to think this week about who's looking at your life. I want to put a guilt trip on you, but it's a, it's a stirring thought to think that maybe your children are going to write a significant part of their life because of how you are managing your life in the power and strength of Jesus Christ. Maybe their story is going to have a significant place for what, how God used you in their lives to validate and bona fide the truth of the gospel. Maybe it's a coworker, a boss, somebody who gets under your skin. There's purpose in God's providence. Now, if you will, pass the cups toward the center in this direction. And the guys are going to pick them up. Thank you. I want to remind you we have the opportunity to give to the Deacons Fund. And that is dedicated to helping people tangibly in the name of Jesus Christ, demonstrating his love 
to those who come to the church and those who are a part of our covenant family in Christ. So if you're able, if you're in a position, give and give generously to the Deacon's Fund. But if you need help, it's for you and we encourage you to, uh, to let us give you a helping hand in his loving name. Let's stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. That's his providence. May you know his joy today. And may you see him moving in your lives. And if you're in doubt, look at your compass. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You'll see his providence. God bless you. Make it a great day. God bless.